For those of you who have been at retreats with us before, you may have heard us speak of one of our teachers, a woman in Calcutta named Deepama. Just recently, the first of this month, she died. She was about 77 years old. She was really one of the most extraordinary people that many of us had met. She was one of the greatest inspirations to us in our practice because she combined in a very unique way a tremendous depth of wisdom and understanding and a radiance of metta, of loving-kindness. The depth of her wisdom, to a large extent, came out of the depth of her suffering. In her life, she married when she was very young, according to Indian custom at that time. I think she was 14 years old or 12. Two of her three children died And after not many years, her husband died. She became very ill from what she described as this tremendous grief and sorrow that filled her mind. She said she was bedridden for five years because of this weakness and ill health. And at the end of that time, she realized that unless she actually did something to strengthen her mind that she herself would die. At that time she was living in Burma, so she went to one of the monasteries, one of the great monasteries there, and began to practice. And in the beginning she was so weak, she said that she had to crawl up the steps to the meditation hall. She didn't even have the strength to walk up the steps. Can you imagine yourselves making that effort, crawling up the steps of IMS to get to the hall? The motivation, the effort was so strong, so intense. And because she brought this to her practice, it bore the commensurate results. She reached high stages of enlightenment and wisdom and power. Through the suffering, she developed this deep understanding of emptiness. And one felt that with her. A tremendous absence of self. But what was so unique about her as a being and as a teacher was the integration of this wisdom and emptiness with this wonderful, strong, and powerful quality of metta, of love. When you were with her, it was like being bathed in loving-kindness. As she went through her life, the way she related to people was to bless them. 
wherever she was and whoever she was with, it's as if she was this fountain of blessings. Be happy, be happy, be happy. And she would give these incredible blessings. She'd run her hands over your head and back and chest, just spreading this feeling of be happy, of metta, of well-wishing. She would bless people, she would bless animals. One time she was leaving America, she was blessing the whole plane. She'd be happy. <laughs> it had become so strong a part of her, it's as if she were the embodiment. It was the natural state at that time of her mind. This quality of emptiness and quality of metta. And because of the rarity of this, she became this just wonderful inspiration to us to see what was possible. What is this quality of metta? What is this quality of loving-kindness, of loving-care? And can we learn how to develop it in ourselves? The beauty of the Buddha's teachings is that these beautiful qualities are not something merely to admire or to respect. The whole of the teachings is about making these qualities our own. How can we develop them in ourselves? How can we become like Deepama? The word bhavana in Pali, which is generally translated as meditation, we just learned today in our Pali class, means to cause to be developed. It has a causative aspect to it. And it just struck something, struck the, a chord as we were discussing this, because that, there's that sense then of empowerment, that we can cause to be developed wisdom and mindfulness and concentration and metta and loving-kindness. Metta is this generosity of the heart which simply wishes people to be happy. It's this wish and thought and feeling, may you be happy. May you be truly happy. It is only seeking the benefit of others. It is not a quality which seeks anything for itself or for oneself. And because of this, the quality of metta has an enormous purity. And the nature of its purity is that it is never associated in any way with anything harmful. And think of what a quality of mind is like that in no way is harmful to oneself or others. It is only a blessing. That's the power. That's its purity. 
the wish for people to live in happiness, to live in peace, There's a story of the Zen hermit monk Ryokan. He lived in the 18th century, in the middle of the 1700s. And evidently he was this kind of hermit monk who lived in a little hut up in the forest. And he would meditate and go out and play with the kids and just spend his days in nature. He wrote many wonderful poems. There's a story of how he had very little in his hut. He just had a few cooking utensils and maybe a mat. And then one day he came back to his hut and he saw that everything had been stolen. What did he do? He wrote a little haiku poem. The moon at the window, the thief left it behind. That's a generosity of heart. No anger, no resentment, just... It's that quality of metta. Wishing well even for the thief who who stole the few things that he had. The characteristic quality of metta is this softening of the heart. And this is not a metaphor. You know, we all know the feeling when we are hardened, when our bodies are tight, when it's tense. And when a feeling of benevolence, of love arises, everything softens. Like there is a literal softening and opening. This softening of the heart makes the mind tremendously smooth and pliable and soft and spacious. It allows for the arising of all kinds of benevolent thoughts and feelings. When we're tight, when we're contracted, when we're tense, It's very difficult for this feeling of love to emerge. This softness of the heart, in a very direct way, becomes the ground of wisdom comes the foundation of wisdom. Because when our minds and our hearts are pliable and soft and spacious, we're not easily irritated. There's a great patience that is there in the mind. When there's a patience, when we're not easily irritated by things, there's a clarity about seeing things clearly can really see more objectively what things are wholesome, what things are unwholesome, what leads to suffering, what leads to happiness. And because of this clarity, which is born of that patience, of that openness, we begin to choose more wisely in our lives. 
we choose more lively, wisely because we can see. We can see more clearly. As we choose more wisely, choose things which lead to happiness rather than lead to suffering, again it brings us more happiness, which makes the metta flower even more. And so we're on this wonderful spiral of metta and wisdom, which is exactly the spiral that Deepama had perfected so much. The love feeds the wisdom, and the wisdom feeds the love. It's very easy for us to see the wonderful qualities of this state. It's not difficult for us to recognize that having an open heart of wishing well, of benevolence, of peace, of coolness, that these are desirable qualities. And yet very often we find that they may be lacking in us in different situations or different experiences, we may find that there is an absence of this metta, an absence of loving feeling, even though we know that it's a wholesome state. Why is that? How can we understand its absence? There are two powerful enemies of metta strong enemies of loving-kindness which arise in the mind and have the power to destroy that loving feeling. And so it becomes necessary for us to understand what these enemies are, how they arise, so that we don't unknowingly feed them and strengthen them so that we can actually come to an understanding of how they operate and begin to weaken their impact, weaken their force, weaken their power. The first of these states is called the near enemy of metta. And it's called the near enemy because it looks like metta. It looks like love. It masquerades as love. It's disguised as love, but it's not love. It's something else. And that's the quality in the mind of desire, or craving, or lust. These states of mind involve a wanting of something rather than a giving. Rather than being a generosity of the heart, it's a wanting of the heart. Very different movement, very different energy. This force of greed or desire or lust or craving is seeking to fulfill this quality of wanting. And so it becomes the source in a very deep way of future suffering. When desire or craving or wanting comes masquerade as, masquerading as love, it's very confusing. 
it's very difficult to see then the actual true nature of this near enemy. And so we become deceived by it. It becomes interesting to examine and to look at why we become confused by these two mind states. Why do they confuse us? Why do we get entangled? In both metta, in both loving-kindness and in desire, there is a going towards the object, going towards the person, going towards the situation. So there's a movement outward. And in both of these states, there is often a feeling of great pleasure and great delight. But in the feeling of metta, there is only a wish for that person or that being or that situation, a wish for happiness, a wish for peace. In the feeling of desire, in the feeling of wanting, we're going out and delighting. But in that going out, there is a wanting it for ourselves, or wanting something for ourselves. And so it looks, because of the pleasantness and the delight in the going out to the object or to the person, it can often feel like love, but it's not. When we get caught in the delightful aspects of desire, then we don't see the dangers inherent in it. And there are many similes in the Buddha's teachings <clears throat> describing the dangers of desire, of craving, of clinging. One of the <clears throat> more famous ones is that of the monkey getting caught in a trap of of tar. There's, there's a, an area of tar spread on the ground. The monkey puts one paw and then the other and then the other two until it's completely caught and then puts its head trying to get out and its head is caught. We may think that, oh, we don't do that. We can taste our desires. <laughs> and maybe often we do, and we can. But in a deeper meditative sense, that image, that simile, is very powerful. If you think of desire for sense objects, not only or necessarily as being you know, excessively lustful thoughts, but just our attachment to each of the sense objects of experience, to sights and sounds and smells and tastes and sensations in the body and thoughts and emotions, everything we know, everything in our experience. We are caught, we are caught in our attachment to phenomena to these six sense objects, mind included, 
And what we are doing here in the practice, and the whole path of the Buddha's teaching, is to transform that energy of attachment to these different objects of experience, which is the totality of who we are, sights and sounds and everything, moment to moment, to transform the energy of attachment to these experiences, really to one of metta, to one of love, where there is a generosity towards them without a holding, without craving. Desire, or the danger of desire, one of the examples used is that of superglue. Sticks to anything. You know? And the stronger this force in the mind can become very, very powerful. You know, and many of us are familiar in one way or another with the power of addiction in the mind. We become addicted to many things. That's this force of glue, of superglue or the force of a moth being drawn into a flame. The force of desire, the force of attraction is so strong, so powerful, it actually leads to destruction. We know the possibility, the power of overwhelming desire, wanting, lust in the mind, it's tremendously destructive. It has a kind of hypnotizing power. When we're caught up and we're confusing it with love or with metta, it's as if our minds become hypnotized. We don't see what's happening. We confuse these two states. One of the great lines of Upandita's teaching, one which I like a lot. He says, lust cracks the brain. (laughs) All of this is to look at. All of this which has been talked about is not to just believe or accept blindly. It's really to look in ourselves. Okay, is there a difference between the feeling of metta and the feeling of desire? To look, examine carefully, and to really see from which of these feelings arises fear, arises projection, arises expectation, arises disappointment. From which of these feelings arises peace, arises well-being, arises happiness. We need to look carefully, we need to observe carefully so we know for ourselves. And so we can discriminate clearly in our own minds, we can recognize clearly, so we're not deceived by this near enemy of metta.
second enemy, the second great enemy of love, is called the far enemy. And it's called the far enemy because it's a feeling which is very far away from loving-kindness. In fact, it is its opposite. And it's the feelings of ill-will, aversion. Aversion has two forms. It has a very strong form. It has an aggressive form, which comes out as anger or hatred. This anger or hatred strikes out. It strikes out in our thoughts, it strikes out in our speech, it strikes out in our action. And we know, we know from our experience, when, when anger is happening very strongly, it's tremendously harmful. It harms ourselves, it harms other people. Because it has this very aggressive quality. What makes us get angry or resentful? Again, it's so interesting to see. We know the feeling of love makes us feel good, is wholesome, is benevolent. We know the feeling of anger and hatred and aversion is unwholesome and causes suffering. And yet, over and over again, it arises. We need to understand the conditions, the causes. That's what gives us the possibility of freeing ourselves from it. If we don't understand the causes, then over and over again the habit continues. Feelings of ill will and anger, this aggressive kind of aversion, tacking energy in the mind, it often comes from certain kinds of thoughts. We have a thought about people having hurt us in the past or hurt someone we love. And we think of it and imagine it and remember it and reflect on it. And the more we think about it, the angrier we get. We think about somebody hurting us or somebody we love in the present. Or we imagine somebody hurting us in the future. And the more we dwell on those thoughts of being harmed, or someone we love being harmed, that becomes the condition for anger to arise, for resentment to arise, for hatred to arise. It arises in another way, which is amusing to hear, although it actually does happen. We get angry when we hear about or think about somebody doing something nice to somebody we don't like. You know, some enemy, somebody we're jealous of, some person we have real trouble and ill will towards, and we hear of somebody else doing something nice to them, so we get angry, we get annoyed, we get irritated. It's another cause of this far enemy of metta arising. Anger can also arise out of totally inappropriate 
situations. That is inappropriate for anger to arise in them. One of the places I see it really just sticking its little head up in my mind, I do a lot of traveling, and it seems increasingly these days there are tremendous delays. You know, you go to the airport, plane's two hours late, you finally get on the plane, they announce something's wrong, you can't leave the plane, I'm quite tall, I'm squished into this little seat, you have to sit here for two hours while they fix the... And I just see the beginnings of this anger arising in my mind. It's totally fruitless. The breakdown of that part was not personal. <laughs> they weren't out to get me. And so it's just interesting to watch, okay, am I going to keep my mind on that channel and get more and more irritated and upset or change channels? It's very nice to locate... It's no longer the chat, it's the... Uh... <laughs> I don't know what you call it. <laughs> The remote control switch. Another example of the inappropriate response of anger happened on our recent trip to the Soviet Union. Sharon and I were arriving in Moscow from Leningrad. We were in the airport and there was a big group of American tourists. And there was this one woman from, obviously from New York, which I, <laughs> I recognized uh, from my own background <laughs> saying in quite a loud voice talking about all the signs in the Russian alphabet, in the Cyrillic alphabet she was going on and on it really annoys me that the signs are in Russian <laughs> <laughs> It's useful to watch just what it is that triggers these responses of anger in the mind. Whether it's actually thinking about harmful things that have been done to us, or good things happening to people we don't like, or in situations that are totally out of our control and impersonal. To see, to track, to be very watchful, because anger is the enemy of metta. You know, sometimes we don't appreciate that it's not simply anger in the moment, but that it's having an effect in the mind. And the effect of it in the mind is that it is destroying, in that moment, the quality of love. And it's not to hate the anger which is obviously just strengthening it more. But it's to learn to see it so we can let go. So we can again come to that place of softness, of openness. The second kind of ill will is more subtle. 
And very often we don't even realize that it is ill will. Because it's not the attacking or aggressive kind, like anger or hatred. It's the retreating kind of ill will. That kind of ill will which collapses in on oneself. And we experience this as fear. We experience it as sorrow. We experience it as grief. All of these feelings, which really are rooted in aversion, collapsed back in on oneself, causing not particularly harm to others, but great harm to ourselves. Now, there are some animals, when they're just startled, you know, or caught in a trap, or actually can die of fright, can die of fear. This retreating kind of aversion is tremendously destructive also. And we know also when the mind is overwhelmed by sorrow or overwhelmed by grief, the mind gets very out of balance. At those times there is no peace. There is no metta at that time. What's interesting is just as we can confuse desire or that kind of attraction with love, we can also confuse this feeling of sorrow and grief with love and compassion. If we're in tremendous sorrow, we might think that that's an expression of love or an expression of compassion. And actually, it's different. It takes a lot of refinement and a lot of subtlety of mind to observe carefully enough to see these differences. And to understand that both the attacking, the aggressive kind of aversion, and also the retreating kind of aversion are both enemies of metta, enemies of loving-kindness. There is a very deep wisdom in understanding that all of these qualities of the mind are impersonal. It's not that the anger is mine, or the sorrow is mine, or that the love is mine. They're all attributes or qualities of mind and of the heart. And when we understand them, as attributes conditioned by different causes, then it gives us the power to understand what is the condition for what. What are the causes for anger to arise? What are the causes for sorrow to arise? And we abandon them. What are the causes for loving kindness to arise, for metta to arise? We cultivate them. 
We've looked at the actual quality of metta, which is a feeling of softness, of generosity, of coolness, of peace, of benevolence, of great purity, because it is in no way associated with harm. We've looked at the enemies of metta, of what destroys it. The near enemy of desire, the far enemy of ill will and aversion. The question then for us is how can we cultivate, how can we cause to develop this feeling of metta so that it is not easily overcome by its enemies, so that it becomes so strong in us that it cannot be shaken very easily. In the Buddha's teaching, there is one quality of mind which is said to be the proximate cause for many wholesome mind states. Metta is included. And this is the mental quality of wise consideration. When we're considering experience, our own experience wisely, that becomes the cause for wholesome states to arise. So what are the kinds of wise consideration that develop metta in us, that develop this feeling of love? The first wise consideration is seeing and focusing on the beautiful qualities in people. We are all a package of qualities. We're all this mixture. Now we have some really beautiful qualities and we have things that are not so beautiful in us. If we keep focusing on what is not beautiful, in other people or in ourselves. That brings up the feelings of resentment or anger or ill will. If we can get into the habit of actively seeking out the good qualities in people, what happens is that as we seek out, which is itself a generous act, and it's an active act, we really look carefully to see what is beautiful in people, what is wise, what is good. And we focus our relationships with people on those qualities. Quite naturally, feelings of love and care and respect start to grow. As they start to grow, the mind becomes more spacious, becomes more patient, so that it is in fact able to see the other parts and be much less reactive. We need to remember to do this. This takes an effort. It's not necessarily our natural habit of mind. But if we consider this wisely and actually do it, we find that it becomes the cause of the strengthening 
of this loving feeling. The second wise consideration is trying to understand the causes behind a person's unskillful acts. Because people do unskillful things. They may do hurtful and harmful things. If we can understand some of the conditions or the causes behind that, it takes the edge off of our reaction, off our resentment, off our anger. We still may want to respond in a skillful way, but it can be from a place of love rather than from a place of hatred. We can do it with people who have different views than we do. Just to to try to understand things from their perspective. Love also comes from a reflection or a development of gratitude. Gratitude is the seed of loving feeling. For me, very much in my meditation practice, especially early on, lots of thoughts of my early childhood started to come. And like everyone else, you know, we have our psychological stuff with our parents and our family, and sometimes it can be difficult. But as the mind softened and these memories started coming up, there was this tremendous feeling of gratitude for all the, all the good things that were done, that were given. Out of that gratitude came, came wonderful feelings of metta, of loving-kindness. To reflect with gratitude is a powerful cause, a powerful condition, not only to, not only to family, just to different people that have been benefactors for us. And the last of the wise considerations is understanding the wholesomeness, the skill, the benefit of a heart and mind filled with love and the disadvantages, the suffering, when we're filled with anger or fear, or aversion. We understand the karmic consequences. So that also becomes motivation, becomes impetus for us to work on this. In the meditation practice itself, we can cultivate the metta in several ways. We actually do a metta practice, a meditation practice, directing loving thoughts. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be free of suffering. As much as possible, sinking into that feeling, what those words mean, what the feeling is about. It is not a wishing for anything for oneself. It is a giving, it is a generosity. The simple wish, may you be happy. We can also cultivate this 
in a <clears throat> less specific way in the Vipassana practice. That is, in watching the breath, in watching sensations, in watching sounds, to observe what is the quality of the mind? Is the quality of the mind resistant? Is it forcing? Is it struggling? Is it loving? Some years ago, we were leading a retreat here, and I was sitting, Sharon was giving the talk. She was giving a talk on metta. And I was sitting with this tremendous pain in my knee. And I was sitting just kind of enduring it, wishing the talk would get over. (laughs) And then in one illuminated moment, I actually started to listen. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, oh, metta. And I actually started sending metta towards the pain. It was amazing. It was like this miracle. Because in that moment, I had not even realized how much I was sitting with a quality of endurance, you know, just waiting for it to get over. As soon as that attitude changed, as soon as I just brought to bear that feeling of metta towards the pain, the whole thing opened up. The pain opened up. My whole being opened up because I was no longer struggling, no longer fighting. And so it's not only a specific meditation to do you know, at the beginning or end of a sitting, it's also the underlying quality which gives a softness and an openness and a spaciousness to the whole practice of vipassana. And this is really what Deepama embodied. It was this bringing together of these two deep and powerful qualities of wisdom and of loving-kindness. And it's qualities that we can develop in ourselves. Let's sit for a few minutes. See if you can do the walking with the feeling of loving kindness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.